Welcome to the Arcananth Podcast. I am your host, Michael, and this is the podcast all about people, history, cultures, health. And I'm so happy to have another guest on the show today, Amanda Whistler. Amanda, are you there? I am here. How are you today, Amanda? I am good. It's a beautiful day out in Cleveland, so things are looking up. Oh, cool. It's a beautiful day here in the Netherlands as well, where I am. Last year, I actually went to a conference in Cleveland. Oh, the AAPAs? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you manage to go to that one? I did. I was here. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I thought that Cleveland was really good. Really good food and the conference was really good. Yeah. There's there's a lot to do here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do most of it, but yeah, it, it can be a really great city. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how long have you been in Cleveland? I got here. So I am... Uh, from Arizona. That's where I go to school. But I've been here since January collecting my, well, trying to collect my dissertation data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was supposed to be here until June collecting all that, but we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How has the current situation sort of affected your PhD life? Like what, what stage of your PhD are you at right now? And what sort of unique challenges has this situation brought for you? So I... I'm ABD, so I have defended my proposal. And then it took me about a year to get funding to actually come and do my project. Mm-hmm. And I finally was able to get funding. Um, and so hopefully I had about a year left. But what happened was, is I was, what, three months into collecting my dissertation data. Mm-hmm. And um, then, so I've been working at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. and working with the Hammond Todd collection there, a collection of human skeletal remains. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, mm-hmm. um, the COVID-19 pandemic happened and the museum has been shut down. Mm-hmm. So I collected about a little over half of the data that I had wanted to get. And that, that might be it. That might be right. what I get. Right. For mm-hmm. this, and, and so would you describe yourself as um, a bioarchaeologist? Then I would. Yes, um, I'm a bioarchaeologist. So I go to I'm a graduate student at Arizona State University, mm-hmm. and we have a specific bioarchaeology approach, and I am in that approach. Mm-hmm. Although I have experience in archaeology and forensic anthropology as well. Cool. Yeah. And so when you were first doing your PhD in the very beginning, how did you come into a decision with your mentors as to what project you would want to do? Mm -hmm. So that's actually a great story. Mm -hmm. My original dissertation I had wanted to, so my undergraduate degree is in Near Eastern studies. Um, I love the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia. And I had wanted to do a dissertation uh, using Mesopotamian skeletal remains. Unfortunately, um, you've talked with a lot of Near Eastern scholars. The preservation is often just terrible mm-hmm. yeah. in the Near East. And so what happened is I actually did all of my comps for the first project and then realized, uh-oh, this doesn't work. <laughs> and so that was project number one that went down. And then I was going to do a dissertation um, using sort of looking at uh, structural violence, using some human remains from... Colombia, uh, Medellin, Colombia. Mm-hmm. And we decided, uh oh, that's not going to work either. So I've actually done my comps three times. Oh, why did the one in Colombia not work? We decided that, again, the collection just wasn't going to be adequate mm. to answer my questions in um, a definite way. Right. I could have probably gotten you know, some wishy washy answers, but that's not what my advisor wanted. She wanted, um, very clear cut, like, yes, you are going to be able to say 
something. Right. So then we finally decide on, you know, I've always been very interested in paleopathology, mm-hmm. particularly um, we have a lot of assumptions that we make about what all of these indicators of stress mean in paleopathology, how are human skeletal remains and these collections biased. And so I've always been interested in, in questioning our assumptions. And so that's how I sort of got on being interested in um, sort of large epidemic mm-hmm. collections. And yeah, that's where this came from is mm-hmm. looking at the Spanish influenza pandemic ah. is what I, I don't know if I've actually said what I do yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so my the dissertation that has finally happened is I am looking at uh, frailty and resiliency in the 1918 flu pandemic. Mm. So my, yeah, so my research questions are, were frail people more likely to die in the 1918 flu pandemic? Um, I'm looking at whether resilient people were more likely to survive. And then I'm also looking at um, sort of whether age, sex, and what I'm calling social race has an influence on who died and survived mm-hmm. the 1918 flu. Interesting. Uh, you know, uh, just to, before we dig into to, to that project, like uh, just on the mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Near Eastern populations, like when we look at their skeletal remains because of the environment, a lot of the time the bones are disarticulated or they're fragmentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've known like a lot of my friends who who look at skeletons like that and I just find it so painful it, yes. <laughs> to consider like, Doing a project on that, so I I love skeletons that are well preserved, and you can get all you know two hundred and six bones. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there you can certainly do like those collections need to be studied, and there are some amazing collections yeah. out there. There are ways around it, but there wasn't enough for a dissertation. You know, mm-hmm. like you need at least according to my advisor, you need to have a substantial. You know, yeah. Um, the data needs to be enough to actually say something. Yeah. There, there are ways around that and like other, other things that you can um, glean about people in the past from fragmentary remains, but it almost becomes half of the thesis in itself. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to something like paleopathology, um, as I'm sure you know, like it's, you really need uh, as much data as you can and as well, well-preserved skeletons as you can, as you can get. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned these two terms, uh, resilience and frailty. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, maybe like some of my other guests have mentioned those two words too, but maybe in other contexts. And I understand that it depends on what realm of archaeology or anthropology you use these terms, what those two terms will mean. In the context of paleopathology, can you give us a bit of background on those two terms? Certainly. Uh, So as far as I'm using them, I'm using them in a strictly demographic definition. So a person who is frail is by definition more likely to die. And a person who would Mm -hmm. be resilient or more robust would be more likely to survive. So those are sort of my baseline definitions. And now why a person might be frail or resilient is an entirely different question. There are Mm -hmm. a million different reasons that could be true. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you were looking at this in the context of the uh, Spanish influenza of 1918. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there a lot of bones out there that would fit that time period and you know you can reasonably suppose from historical records that those people these skeletons belong to individuals who once had spanish flu sure yeah so 
This particular collection, the Hammond Todd that I am using, um, is a really amazing collection because it's a documented skeletal collection. So we know mm -hmm. the ages of these people. We know when they died. We know, we, we can guess at when they were born. Mm -hmm. And we know their cause of death. So I have a decent sample of individuals who have cause of death as, yeah. you know, the 1918 influenza or, um, you know, pneumonia and influenza. Mm -hmm. Even back then, they were sort of pairing those together. And is there any doubt as to whether those records, you know, are reliable? Certainly. There's always doubt, um, mm -hmm. especially since our definitions have changed over time. Mm -hmm. You know, what a cause of death could be. There are, there are a bunch of really odd ones in there, mm -hmm. um, very specific ones. So I think there's a couple that I found that were, you know, I, this person got ran over by a trolley. Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> there's uh, a couple, there seems to be several in there where the listed cause of death, I'm saying in quotes, mm -hmm. is something that is not a cause of death, like blindness. Oh. That's not a cause of death. Mm -hmm. um, that's just something that they decided to throw in there. <laughs> yes. But I feel pretty confident that especially at this at this time, being able to recognize pneumonia and influenza, mm -hmm. especially tuberculosis, they, they would have been able to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so when you're trying to uh, understand whether an individual had pathological lesions on their skeleton, what were you looking out for when you were examining these skeletons? So I, for my dissertation, I was looking at, um, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So for my project, I'm looking at several different pathological lesions mm -hmm. uh, that are throughout the skeleton. And in the dentition as well. So in the teeth. Mm. So I'm looking at uh, a linear enamel hypoplasia. That's one that's very common. So what happens is, is as your teeth grow, uh, when you're either uh, in utero or when you're uh, very young, your enamel is growing. And if there is some sort of systemic insult, so if you are malnourished, there's some mm -hmm. sort of environmental stress, the enamel will stop growing. And you get this line in your teeth. And so that's one of the things I'm looking at. This is this line in your teeth. Mm -hmm. Another one I'm looking at is femoral length. So that's a, also a very common one. Um, so there's this assumption that individuals who have experienced, again, some sort of systemic stress, um, whether they are malnourished, um, will be shorter. Mm -hmm. And that's actually still... A metric that is used today. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, actually has recently published, you know, standards in the world for what it means to be, you know, stunted. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think another one I'm looking at is periodontal disease. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that. Um, that's something that people get all the time today. And so I can look at um, the bone in the mouth that's around the teeth, the alveolar bone, mm -hmm. to see if people had periodontal disease in the past. Mm -hmm. It kind of like shows up as um, the bone has been uh, eaten away almost. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it has a lot of uh, like holes in it. So we're very porous. Mm -hmm. Two more are um, cribra orbitalia and parotic hyperostosis. And these are thought to be related. Um, most people think that these are caused by anemia. Um, and what these are is they are in the skull 
and you get sort of, you know, these, these porous, these holes sort of in the top of the skull and also in, in the eyes, on the eye mm-hmm. bones. And uh, if uh, people out there are not osteologists, uh, it's not like there's a big gaping hole in the skull. Uh, No. Just tiny, tiny little holes, uh, but it's not like, yeah, (laughs) it's not like big pieces of bone are missing. Yes, no, absolutely. (laughs) And I'm looking at the diameter of the vertebral neural canal. So in your vertebrae, Mm -hmm. um, you've got sort of a hole in the middle, which is where your spinal cord goes in life. And similar to stature, when a uh, a growing person, so a child is stressed, mm-hmm. this hole won't grow properly, and so it'll be smaller than it needs to be. And so I can measure those and see, you know, who is who has a smaller diameter and who has larger diameters. And the people with smaller ones are probably more stressed. Mm-hmm. So the last one is again one of the most common ones that we look at is called periostosis. Um, some people call it periostitis. And so this is particularly as I'm looking um, on the tibia, so on your shin bone, so right where you run into things all the time with your leg. Um, it's a similar thing where you get this, this porousness. So you get lots of little holes, mm-hmm. or sometimes you'll get this extra layer of very fragile bone that will grow on top of the shin. And this is caused by a lot of things. It can actually be caused by injury. Um, but that's not what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, it is again thought to be a result of sort of systemic stress, systemic infection. So when you're just generally, you know, if somebody is very ill a lot mm-hmm. or not getting fed enough, that is something that can happen is you get the periostosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In general, like all seven of these things could uh, reflect someone having a frail you know, status at that time. Yes, that is what I am saying, is that if a person has, if one of my individuals has these, then I'm saying that they are a stressed individual, that they are more likely to be mm-hmm. frail. I find that the vertebral canal thing very interesting because I've never actually collected that one before. It's a very, yeah, it is not common. There are only a handful of articles out there or projects where people have study this. Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, a lot of these, the papers that come out, they'll find only a handful of the individual vertebrae. Yeah. So will be indicative of any sort of frailty. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, On that um, one, that one's a we'll see. Yeah. So t- uh, take me through that process of, um, you know, applying for access to these bones that you're now studying uh, in Cleveland or you were measuring and observing up until yeah, now. Um, so working with this particular collection, the Hammond Todd collection at the museum was actually very, very easy. Um, there are no, I didn't really need any extra permits. There was no mm-hmm. um, research fee. Basically, I emailed the collections manager and the museum curator said, hello, I would like to come visit your collection and study there for six months. And they said, okay, mm-hmm. sounds great. Oh, have you found a place? So I, I suppose you find a place to rent for six months, right? Yep. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like it's all these things that like, um, you know, if you don't uh, do this type of research, people don't realize that you have to organize. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I applied for two sort of major 
research grants to do my dissertation. And this is basically what mm-hmm. the money has gone to as I applied for money for rent and for food. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, that that's a thing. Yeah. And so earlier you mentioned like uh, that you had uh, worked up to, uh, you know, about half of the skeletons that you uh, wanted to look at. Um, what has the experience been like so far? Uh, have you found it, you know, easy? Have there been challenges that, that come along the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a, also a good question. It's been amazing to look at this collection because it's so big. So there's over 3,000 individuals here. And wow. from a strictly, you know, academic point of view, it's really cool to see these remains and see all these different illnesses and these pathologies. I've seen some amazing, you know, healed fractures. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, unfortunately, there's a lot of violence that's happened to the individuals in these collections. So there's a lot of gunshot wounds, things like that, which are terrible, but are also interesting to look at from a forensic point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of re- reconstruct this person's life. Mm-hmm. And it's also a great learning opportunity because really the only way you can learn more about these things is to just see them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So that's been amazing. Mm -hmm. The day-to-day collection of data is actually very grueling. I think a lot of people don't realize how just tiring it is. How long do you take for lunch? Um, I'm like, really like, I'm, I'm like, uh, this is the, I haven't talked to another bio arc yeah. <laughs> for a while and I'm like comparing notes. <laughs> mm-hmm. It really depends. Um, it depends on how I'm feeling that day, honestly, and depends on sort of who else was in the lunchroom that day. And if there's an interesting conversation going on, but yeah, maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of have, you know, one or two breaks planned in the morning and then in the evening. Yeah. But yeah, spending how many hours a day just sort of bent over a table and carrying these things and trying to do minute little caliper caliper measurements is exhausting. Exactly. Especially the teeth. Absolutely. And <laughs> this is sort of a side thing, but this collection, because it's so big, mm-hmm. these trays are actually very large. The trays that each individual are in is about maybe three and a half feet wide. And so these are huge trays and they're stacked up maybe 15 feet to the ceiling. And so it's all day, it's just up and down ladders Mm -hmm. and carrying these heavy trays and also trying not to jostle all of the remains. Yeah. So... I remember yes. uh, when I had to uh, write my research proposals, there was like this risk assessment sheet that I had to do. And I literally had to put on there things like, I will be careful when going up the ladder. I will hold the boxes with, you know, uh, only one box at a time with both hands, <laughs> mind my step, and all of these sorts of uh, funny things that I have to put in the risk assessment. Mm. And earlier you mentioned that uh, one of these questions that you would like to tackle here are some of the assumptions and biases that you know perhaps uh, earlier paleopathologists like 30 years ago would make about health and disease. And I'm, I'm curious to know what assumptions or biases are you talking about there? So in bioarchaeology, there's this huge theoretical problem that has become known as the osteological paradox. 
and all of your bioarchaeological listeners right now are shaking their heads and diving under covers. <laughs> um, there's sort of three parts to it, but one of the main ones that people think about is this idea that the bone, human bone, actually takes quite a long time, like several months to several years to actually remodel once there's a disease. And so these indicators of stress that I'm looking at, these lesions, couldn't have been formed unless the person was strong enough to be able to form this new bone. Hmm. So how do we know that the people who are the most frail don't have any indicators at all because they died before their bones could remodel? Right. And this is a huge problem um, that a lot of people ignore, I think, because it's very hard to do anything with. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I am sort of working around that is I'm using a different type of analysis to analyze the, these indicators of stress. So a lot of people will, um, you know, just sort of count them and say, oh, you know, this, these people have more of these lesions, so they're more sick and more stressed than this, these other people who don't have them. Mm -hmm. And that can be sort of potentially, you know, that could be wrong. So I'm using a hazards analysis to analyze these indicators. And what this will tell me is whether um, certain individuals who have these indicators of stress were more likely to die than similarly aged individuals without these lesions. Hmm. How is that hazards analysis done? Like, how do you how do you compare those risks? So, at the moment, I'm using uh, this particular model that will tell mm -hmm. me. So, I take my data. My data will have sort of the age at death of all of these individuals, and then whether or not they had, mm -hmm. you know, the periostosis on their tibia, and that goes through my model. And mm -hmm. it will tell me whether individuals with the periostosis were more likely to die. So one of my research questions is, were frail people more likely to die during the pandemic? I can see if individuals who died of the flu, who have these indicators, are actually more likely to die. Mm -hmm. And that's where like the, having the historical records of um, why, why they passed away is going to be quite useful. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, a previous researcher, Dr. Sharon DeWitt, who is actually also on my committee, has used um, this hazards analysis approach to identify whether people who were frail were actually more likely to die in the Black Death. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this assumption in the Black Death that, you know, it killed everyone indiscriminately. Everybody was likely to die. So she used this method to show that actually people who were frail were more likely to die. Mm -hmm. um, and so she really questioned that assumption and showed that, no, this assumption that we made is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're collecting this data, uh, are you, especially now, maybe when um, you know, you're not able to go into the lab as often, are you someone who looks at your data like along the way just to get a peek at what you might be finding? Or are you someone who sort of waits, <laughs> waits until you have it all so that you can uh, consider it all together? Since I've been in quarantine, I've definitely been playing with it a lot. I actually played with it a lot over the 
past couple of days. Mm-hmm. Before I didn't, I sort of just left it. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where, oh, okay, I can't, I can't look at this right now. <laughs> but at this point, yes, I have done um, some basic analysis of what do I think is going on in the data. Mm-hmm. Going into your project, did you have any hypotheses as to uh, what patterns you might see overall, or perhaps if you were to divide your data up by age or sex, or as you said, social race? Mm -hmm. I did. So there is, um, in the 1918 flu, there is, we know that young adults between the ages of 20 to 40 were actually, um, I believe it's like 20 times uh, more likely to die than in previous years. So if you look at the Mm -hmm. mortality curve from the 1918 flu, it's called the W curve. So you can see that, Mm. um, you know, children, you know, infants and mostly infants and toddlers were highly likely to die and older adults were more likely to die, which is what you get in a normal, um, just in the normal influenza season. Mm -hmm. But there's this weird peak in the middle where young adults were also dying at record numbers, which is very odd. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't think that you know, healthy young adults shouldn't be dying. Mm-hmm. And what's more interesting is there are numerous accounts of these young adults being fine, and then 24 hours of later, they've died this horrific death. Wow. Which is really weird. Mm-hmm. There's, like a, there's like a peak like in the middle, and mm-hmm. you know, something about the, you know, perhaps the pathogens uh, biology or something is adapted for that specific you know, time period in the human life. Yeah, there are a bunch of different hypotheses of, you know, why did this happen? What's going on? And so one of the assumptions that I'm really trying to question here in my dissertation is, were these young adults actually healthy? Or was there some underlying frailty that is not evident in the, you know, just the the medical records from the time? Mm -hmm. So I can see a sort of underlying frailty in my data. Mm-hmm. One of my hypotheses was, yes, that young adults should be more frail. The young adults that I see in my sample, because, of course, my sample is made of the dead people, mm-hmm. you know, these young adults should be more frail. Um, there's, if you go through the literature, which is based on, you know, records of the time about whether I would expect um, sex, so whether males or females to be more likely to die, or um, what I'm calling social race. And I guess I should say that I'm calling this social race because in my in the Ham and Todd collection, uh, an individual was categorized as white or black. Hmm. And that was, of course, based on the social norms from, you know, 1914. Mm-hmm. And what those probably reflect is not necessarily a person who they thought looked white yeah. and a person who they thought was not white. Mm-hmm. So those are a little more fuzzy, but one could argue that, you know, a, a person who appeared not white at that time would probably have been treated differently than a person who appeared white at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's an assumption that I am making. And there is interestingly a very mixed data from that time of, whether you would anticipate, um, you know, the white people or the not white people to be more likely to die. Mm -hmm. So I honestly had no idea on that one what to expect. Similarly with 
sex, there is some evidence that males were more likely to die, mm-hmm. um, possibly because men were still going to work and women tended to stay home at mm-hmm. that time. Right. Um, but there's some evidence from um, some work that has been done on Newfoundland, in the Newfoundland that women were actually more likely to die because they were the they were the caregivers. They mm-hmm. were the ones who would go around to their friends and family when they were sick mm-hmm. and you know minister to them. So they would be more likely to be infected. And so it really depends on the different roles during a specific time in a specific context. It's the roles. There's yeah, I mean the social roles. Um, there has been some work on whether socioeconomic status would have played a role, just like we're seeing today in the COVID-19, you know, people who have to go to work Mm -hmm. tend to be people of lower socioeconomic status. So they're probably being exposed more than those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to shelter in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When things uh, with the COVID situation started to get a little bit more serious and we all had to practice self-isolating, what was the reaction that you had in your head. The fact that you were already in Cleveland trying to collect data, this would affect your, your work. And also I would say that it just so happens that your work is also related to a time of pandemic in the past. I'm just curious to know like how, what you felt about that as, a, as an anthropologist. Sure. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of conflicting emotions because, you know, I feel like I, you know, I went through three different projects before getting to here. And then it took me over a year to get funding. Mm-hmm. And I put, you know, my, you, you put your heart and soul into developing your project. And so to feel it, oh, I don't get to complete it the way I wanted to is very rough. It's very sad. And I think part of me is definitely mourning the loss of my dissertation. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that I'm also, you know, I have half of my data. Mm -hmm. I can still, you know, I've been working with my advisors to develop other plans. And in a way, I mean, this current pandemic shows that my work is relevant. Mm -hmm. You know, my, so the broader impacts part of my NSF grant, you know, was all about how do we prepare for this next pandemic? And so, you know, I've, all of my friends are telling me, well, you'll never have to prove your broader impacts again because here they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But it's like, a, you know, yeah, it's a bittersweet. Like you, you wish that it, it wouldn't be proven relevant like this. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's very hard. And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I'm sure that you know that g- doing data collection under non-pandemic circumstances is, can be a very lonely thing. It's sort of just yeah. you out there in a basement by yourself. Mm-hmm. And so now it's loneliness in a different way, but also the entire world is lonely. So that's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I also, you know, empathize with how, uh, as, you, as you were describing, uh, it already takes a lot for uh, PhD students or, or master's students to even have committed up to, up, up to this point. And so I, I just really hope that well, first of all, I hope that, uh, you know, after everybody takes personal measures and governments take good measures as well on, on the broader societal scale, that this pandemic passes as quickly as possible. But also, I hope that uh, everybody gets the support that they need to 
fulfill their goals, like uh, which which for many people like have already taken years and years of work and a lot of money and a lot of time. Yes, no, I completely agree. This is a very difficult time, and I think um, I've you know I've been talking with a lot of people about this that those of us who are in academia or who are grad students at this moment are at the same time very lucky because a lot of us have online teaching jobs. We are able to, at least for the moment, keep our jobs. Mm-hmm. But I think inherent in being a student or an academic is this feeling that you need to keep producing. If you're not writing, mm-hmm. you're doing something wrong. And it's so hard to write right now Yeah, that a lot of people are feeling really badly about mm-hmm. themselves not being able to be productive in this time. Yeah. I was invited to, um, uh, just yesterday <laughs> to write, um, write an article about COVID, but like, mm. I just, I'm, I'm just not <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel guilty because there's, you know, I haven't been following every single aspect of the pandemic mm-hmm. and I, but I, you know, you feel like you should, this is important, but it's, it's, too much yeah sometimes mm-hmm. um and uh, i was curious to know whether because you have studied the history of the 1918 influenza are there any parallels that you see between them and is there anything educational anything hopeful that we can get from such a such a comparison mm-hmm. yeah i mean this has been something i've been thinking about constantly since what january at least um There are a lot of ways in which, you know, these are similar and different that I think hopefully puts us in a better position than in 1918. Um, So in the 1918 flu, a lot of the deaths occurred because of sort of a secondary pneumonia. Most of the deaths weren't actually caused by the influenza virus. Mm. And so, you know, today, because we have antibiotics, that's a lot less likely to happen. Mm-hmm. So who knows if we didn't have antibiotics, the how high the death toll could be. Mm. So that's really important. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it's not good that we were such a connected world yeah. today you know, with flights and cruises going all over the place caused us to spread much faster mm-hmm. than it did in 1918, which took a couple of months to get around the world. Something else I've been looking at recently has been, you know, sort of how, um, you know, being a bioarchaeologist, I think about mortuary practices a lot, like how we deal with our dead. Mm-hmm. What are the society's attitudes towards death? And so I've been looking a lot and comparing about how that was in 19 and how it was today. And there's so many parallels. Um, there are many sort of mass burials of 1918 flu victims throughout the country, throughout the world, Mm -hmm. um, that look a lot like, you know, the Heart Island pictures that you've seen from New York Mm -hmm. coming up in the news. Um, There's been, you know, a massive disruption to our funeral practices. You know, you hear reports of a family member dying and nobody can go to their funeral because it's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened in 1918. Mm. Yeah. That's really tough when I've heard uh, that that happens sometimes. It is very tough. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to something yesterday where something that I hadn't thought about was that, you know, if 
the virus strikes, if the COVID virus strikes a family and one member of the family dies, you've got, you know, people are trying to mourn while in isolation. So there, you can't even, you know, there's no sense of touch. You can't hug each other. You can't touch each other. Mm -hmm. So how do you mourn with words only? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like, it also sounds like in terms of the importance of like self-isolating as well, were there concepts back in those days of this idea of flattening the curve? Sure, there were. Um, There are uh, numerous like diary entries from people who were, I guess you'd call it, yeah, social distancing in the path. You know, they closed schools, they closed um, churches, theaters, everything was um, mm-hmm. in many cities was just completely closed to prevent large gatherings. So there was a lot of people staying home at that time. You know, many mm-hmm. cities enacted laws saying that you were not allowed to go out in public without a face mask. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were fined for either going out in public without a face mask or spitting on the street because that can aerosolize the virus and that's very dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that I've been talking to my friend quite a lot about is like how to, I guess, like mentally or like psychologically or emotionally deal with this (laughs) or like how to how to react to this properly. And uh, one idea that I gave up pretty much two weeks ago was that it's not helpful sometimes to like always try to find some positive spin or to force oneself to be um, hopeful or happy. It's a very difficult balance there because it puts a lot of pressure on someone if if they always constantly have to feel like they are fine when it's abnormal circumstances, right? And mm. something that my friend uh, and I were talking about yesterday was how uh, she suggested that, you know, sometimes you just have to try to accept that this is abnormal and understand that between now and, you know, sometime in the fall or in the winter, this will be difficult sometimes and just constantly try to be more generous to yourself if you're not, you know, producing as we talked about uh, as much as we want to, or if we're down some days, it's perfectly normal and actually not putting so much pressure on yourself might be more helpful. That is a delicate balance, of course, because you also don't want to, um, I guess, get stuck in a loop of feeling like hopeless. Sure. No, I absolutely agree with that. It's, it's definitely important to let yourself, you know, mourn for just the whole situation. I think it's okay to feel, you know, some self pity mm-hmm. for a bit, you know, all these things that are gone, have gone terribly wrong. Even if you don't know anyone who has died and you're not sick, I think that's, that's okay. Um, it's okay to, you know, experience some depression at this time. I definitely, <laughs> I think maybe a lot of people are having this too, or sort of weird things will set them off. I think I was reading a BuzzFeed article the other day and just started to weep a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people are going through that and everyone is reacting differently as well. And I also hope that like everyone is also generous to each other in how each other chooses to cope with these things. And so some people will want to, to sort of lean in into those feelings and... Um, you know, even share them, but that's okay. It's valid. And uh, other people might not want to. Uh, So I I just hope that we have space for, that we can make space for everybody's unique reactions. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, everybody is going to deal with this in their their own way. Mm -hmm. And some are going to, you know, appear to be more valid than others. But, you know, one is not 
better than the other. If your way of coping is curling into a ball on the couch, like that's, Mm -hmm. that's fine. Yeah. Curl into a ball. Mm -hmm. In terms of going back to anthropology, are there any other areas of the field that you are interested in or have become more interested in as you've traveled along, uh, along this road in your PhD? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of things that I'm interested in. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, to narrow it down. Mm-hmm. You get, in, you know, interested in so many different things. I think, you know, as, as you go through grad school, you know, grad school can be quite a difficult time. And so I think a lot of us go through a phase where we're just sort of disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, it's a very cutthroat. A lot of times, you know, you see... You see people who you know are amazing not get the job. and Somebody who you know isn't amazing gets a job. Mm -hmm. You see people who are teaching things that you think, you know, that's not what we should be teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the things that I've really tried to become interested in recently is, you know, it's important that what we do have a measurable impact on the world, that we are trying to make the world better. And so I've been looking a lot about at teaching. I think that's one of the ways that we can make the world a more tolerant place. And so my friends and I have been really working on these ideas about how do we teach ideas about race and racism and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of ideas, a lot of arguments about what, how do we do this? You know, in an introductory biological anthropology course, if you can to give these students one thing to take away that could make the world a better place. Like that's a great start. That's something that I've been very interested in for a while. Um, but is also a very difficult thing to talk about, to teach in, in, in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to do maybe after your PhD is done or maybe that's too far ahead to, to think about, but yeah, I'm just sort of curious to know if you have what your future plans are. Yeah, I think that I've I think I've been, you know, I have many sort of ideas but no concrete plans, maybe because I'm trying not to get too attached to one idea. I volunteer at the office of the medical examiner in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And so I've been getting a lot into more forensic anthropology. And so one of the things that I'm looking at is if people have heard of the DPAA, the Defense POW uh, MIA Accounting Agency. Mm-hmm. And um, what that is, is there's, it's a facility in Hawaii that helps recover and identify uh, servicemen and women who have died abroad in previous years. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm looking at. Um, honestly, I, I would also be fine with you know, getting a job at a community college and just teaching. Yeah. I really like teaching. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I love interacting. I love coming up like new activities and things mm-hmm. to try and get their minds going. For instance? So I did a, a guest lecture at a local community college back in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I put together um, like a, a fake forensic case. So I collected a bunch of bones and like extra stuff to throw in there. And, you know, each of, you know, each group would get this bag of bones, just like you would get in a forensic case. And they had to, you know, work through it and try to figure out what was going on. 
And so that was really fun to challenge them to put everything that they'd learned together mm-hmm. to think about, um, you know, what are they, what assumptions are they making about what's going on in this bag? You know, did they assume that there was only one person in the bag? Maybe there were two. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, things like that. And when, what drove you to pursue anthropology to begin with? Like, did you know very early on that this would be the discipline that you would enter? Uh, no, actually, I um, didn't become actually an anthropologist until grad school. So my undergraduate degree is in Near Eastern Studies. Mm-hmm. And so up until almost the end of my undergrad, I was going to be an Assyriologist. Mm-hmm. I think you had an Assyriologist on. Um, I did. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, Megan. Megan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you yeah, know, my undergraduate degree, I took two years of Akkadian. I have, I've taken um, Middle Egyptian. So learning the hieroglyphs and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was going to do mm-hmm. until I realized that I liked doing things with my hands. Like I liked any sort of physical thing. And, you know, a seriology is you basically sit there with a book all day and you, mm-hmm. um, you do grammar. Basically you just, you're doing grammar all day. Mm-hmm. And one of my TAs at the time is a bio or was and is a bioarchaeologist. And I thought, Oh wow, this is a really great way of putting together sort of, you know, real life things, you know, excavation, here's a bone in front of you. Here's, you know, the person from the past instead of here's what that person wrote. Yeah. And so then it wasn't until I saw that it's like, Oh, I didn't realize this was even a thing. And so I sort of switched at that point, but I still, I like to put together, you know, documentation plus um, the archaeological evidence. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're not in the lab or when you are not, you know, doing academia, are there things that you do to try and unwind? What do you do in your spare time? I'm a big reader of novels. Nice. So I read, um, I think I just finished a bunch of Aunt Agatha Christie novels, mm-hmm. I guess outside of quarantine. Um, we do a lot of hiking. You know, in Arizona, there's an amazing sort of outdoor adventure scene. So we do a lot of that. Nice. I've uh, gotten into rock climbing. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like rock climbing. Um, I like to do a lot of things that are very mm-hmm. you know, physical, like outdoor doing things. Cool. If anyone wants to ask you any questions or follow your work, can they find you on Twitter or any other platforms? They can. Um, so my Twitter is at... Amanda Whistler. So at Mm -hmm. my name, I've also started a sort of website or research blog that's in its early stages. Still, still got a lot of work on there. And that is uh, peopleandpandemics.com with hyphens in there. So people dash and dash pandemics.com. Cool. What sorts of things are you hoping to post on there? I have a lot of grand plans. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for researchers to share their work. And so I'm trying to get, I would like to pull together, um, you know, a massive bibliography on 1918 flu articles Mm. so that people who are just curious can have a look or, you know, undergraduate researchers who are trying to plan their honors thesis can get started there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to post, once I finish my dissertation, I'm going to post my, um, my computer code on there so people can 
take it and run and do better things with it. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think there's also a, a sort of blog portion on there, which I'm just learning to blog. I'm not very good at it mm-hmm. yet. Where mm-hmm. I've been trying to compare, you know, the 1918 flu with the current pandemic. And so I've got a couple of, there's a couple of posts on there now and got a couple other planned about things that I think are, are interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Exciting. Yeah, hopefully. Um, and, uh, because you've listened to some episodes before, you know, that at the end of the episode, I like to ask the guests if they can come up with a hashtag. Do you have one for this episode? I do. And I actually, I, I pulled, I knew this was coming. So <laughs> I pulled my friends to see, like, okay, can we, can we come up with a, a good one? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one we came up with was learn from the curve. Learn from the curve. What does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, we learning from the 1918 pandemic, you know, what are the things that we need to do to keep ourselves safe? What are the behaviors that we need to put on hold? Um, And, you know, we can learn from the past in order to figure out better what to do today. What are the tactics that we need to take Mm -hmm. to make this stop and to do what we can to make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah, I mean, uh, from my understanding, like, you know, it's very difficult to stop the whole thing um, unless you, we develop a vaccine soon. But um, the whole idea is like so that we don't overburden our hospitals, right? And so uh, that's what self-isolating will help with is to not have the hospitals be burdened with too many patients coming in at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And even so, we still have so many hospitals that are completely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So listeners, I will upload more information about Amanda's work and include a bunch of links on arcanance.com where all of our next episodes coming out will also be out on. You can also find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at arcananthpod. Go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod if you would like to support the show a bit every single month to help keep the show running. It really helps me out with covering server costs and other software costs that I use to edit the podcast. So any bit that you can help out will be really appreciated on patreon.com slash arcananthpod. Uh, Amanda, this has been great. Do you have any closing messages for our listeners? Just everybody stay safe and stay sane. Yeah, uh, I, I echo those sentiments. Yeah. <laughs> I hope everyone out there uh, is doing well. I hope I hope that this, these podcast episodes are really helping people out, most of all, like uh, just escape for, uh, you know, 40 minutes, an hour. I'm sure they are. <laughs> um, I'm really thankful for your help today, though, Amanda. Of course. No, I was. Yes, I'm, I'm very honored. I'm a huge podcast fan in general. I listen to so many. And so I've definitely added yours to my rotation. Mm-hmm. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.